All right, let's get started. If you have a Bible, Gospel of John is where you'll need to be. Gospel of John. All right, tonight we will be doing everything like we do a typical Bible study exercise. If you haven't listened to those, typically the way I do the Bible study exercises is I do some of the teaching and then some of the teaching I leave in your hands to work on. The goal for the Bible study exercises is always to move you from a passive listener to an active participant because, you know, I don't like passive listeners. So you think about a lot of my preaching. I do that all the time, right? I tell you to look this up, look that up. Everyone grab a Bible dictionary, look this up. Or sometimes I even tell you to give me the outline, right? And then what do I do? Then change it, then tell you're all wrong. Okay, right? Okay. But I I try to get you to participate. So that's how the Bible study exercise uh, podcast episode, really how that kind of came about was because I like to have people do the exact same thing online. And the way the Bible study exercises work, for those who don't know, is uh, we have a curriculum that people uh, can uh, access and use. Uh, we have the Bible memory app so that you can memorize whichever verse we're memorizing for that particular week. And we, we typically dedicate an entire week to one passage of Scripture. And so we just finished a series of Bible study exercises this morning. And uh, that for six weeks, we focused on the concept of spiritual pitfalls. All right. So for the next six weeks, this is how it's going to work for those who care or are interested. Uh, but this, I'm, the reason I'm doing this is it's going to set everything up for what we're doing tonight. All right. So the Bible study exercise for the next six weeks is the first session is a life of humble service. We begin that tonight. Next week, a life of loyalty. The week after that, a life of trust. The next week, a life of love. The next week, a life of persecution. Then the next week, a life of victory. That will take us from John chapter 13, verse 1, to John chapter 16, verse 33. And what I tell everyone at the beginning of each week is... Whatever passage of Scripture I give you, read it over and over and over. So the passage of Scripture for this week is John chapter 13, verse 1, to John chapter 13. Let's see, I'm going to change this up. I think I may add a verse here. Give me one second. I can make that decision right now. All the way down to verse 17. All right. John chapter 13, verse 1 to verse 17. That's different than the curriculum. If you look at the curriculum... But I, I can change that because of my, I can do that, right? Okay, so, and so what I always tell everyone online is read it over and 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 over because the more you read, the more you see. And remember the basic rule of Bible study. What's the basic rule of Bible study? Bible study is not interpretation. Bible study is observation. You have to do observation before you can do interpretation. The quality of your interpretation is based off the quality of your observation, right? Bible study is all about observation. Hermeneutics is all about interpretation. Everybody thinks they can read a verse and interpret a verse, but that's not the way it works. You have to read, then utilizing Bible study skills, which are observational skills, Once you've observed what's there, 
Then you can transition into hermeneutics and then interpret what you have observed, right? We've talked about that so much. So the first thing everyone needs to do this week is just read John chapter 13, like as many times as possible until it becomes, well, I'll post the uh, Bible memory app or the the scripture that we're going to be memorizing on the app. I don't know probably this evening or tomorrow, okay? So that's what we're going to be doing. After those six sessions, we'll take probably a one-week break to maybe add to some things that we've looked at in John 13 to John 16, and then it will be six weeks in Matthew 24, and you know how that's not going to be any fun, all right? That's going to be eschatology, eschatology, eschatology. And what do we have to deal with when we turn to Matthew 24? Everybody should know. 70 AD. Everybody looks to Matthew 24 and they want to jump where? To the end times. And before you can interpret Matthew 24 about end times, you have to first understand Matthew 24 in relation to 70 AD, which one is the most significant historical events that every Christian should be an expert on. And why should every Christian be an expert on 70 AD? Well, because so many of the prophecies in the Bible actually point to 70 AD, not to something future. So you've got to understand. I don't know why. It's like people go to church for 15 years and like 70 AD, what happened there? I'm like, or they think it's like a new convenience store. No, it's like a a very important thing that happened in history, okay? Where Jerusalem is completely destroyed and it's a a, a very important thing. And, And you can't understand the book of Hebrews without... 70 AD. I mean, it's like, I, I, so we're going to be dealing with that. That will be lots of, of fun. So that's what we're going to be doing. Now, the reason I gave you all of that information about the curriculum is number one, for the people who listen online, who participate in the Bible study exercises every week. I want them to know what's going on. I've already gave that in the introduction yesterday, but here's the reason I gave you this information. If you look at the curriculum, the description For this week's study reads like this. When we remain connected to Christ, letting him work in us and through us, he leads us to lives of service. Through the love and humility he instills in us, we no longer live for ourselves, but we seek to serve those God has placed before us. Now, you may not see anything significant about those words, but the phrase that jumped out at me me, was, we no longer live for ourselves. We no longer live for ourselves. If you want to write anything down, start that. We no longer live for ourselves. That sounds good, doesn't it? We no longer live for ourselves. Everybody says amen, right? That's great. We say amen only where? In church. (laughs) Because as soon as we get home, who do we live for? Come on, you get home, it's supper time, the kids are at the table, and there's only one piece of whatever cake, whatever they want. Will the other one go, no, after you? Okay, all right, Okay, maybe one. (laughs) There's always maybe one person. But most of the time, like, no, I get that. No, no. And then arguing and arguing and arguing and arguing and arguing and arguing. Because look, the reason there's arguing is because we all want our own way. 
right? I mean, come on. All right. Okay, maybe none of you argue, okay? Maybe I just have to live with someone who always wants their own way, and so that's why we argue. Okay? The rest of you, I'm assuming it happens. So I, I started thinking about that. I'm like, okay, what, what do we do with this? So I set aside the curriculum. I didn't even bother to look at the text, and I grabbed my journal, and this is what I decided to do. I started thinking about this. And I talked about this yesterday for those who heard it. If you didn't, that's okay. I just wrote down in my journal, the journey of the Christian. And the reason I put down the journey of the Christian is I think when we start off the Christian life, we're a long ways, a long ways before we reach the point where we like, it's all about other people. I'm going to serve other people. I'm not going to go for my way. I'm going to worry about other people. I'm going to put other people before me. We're like a million miles from there, right? We don't even see the, you know how when you're driving somewhere and you're like, man, are are we going the right direction because you don't see the road sign for the city you're you're trying to get to yet? And finally, you finally see the first road sign and look like I'm going in the right direction. We're still like a thousand miles from the first road sign, right? Because when we start off the Christian life, we're nowhere close to that. So I started thinking, okay, so what are the stages we go through to get us to that destination of, hey, we're focused on other people. So I started writing down the stages. Stage one of the Christian life, some will argue it's not stage one, but in reality it is. And here's the reason I'm calling it stage one, because anyone who's a Christian has experienced stage one. And we all know what stage one is. What is stage one? Well, it's before salvation. We'll call uh, stage one self-centered because it's our depravity. How do I always define sin? If Twyla's here, she knows because she listens to all the Bible study exercises. Sin, I define sin. Sin is the exaltation of the I. Not E-Y-E, but the letter I. Sin is the exaltation of whom? Self. Sin is all about you, your way. You you don't want to listen to anybody else. You want to do things your way, your way, your way, your way. That's that's where we start off. Depraved sinners, dead in our trespasses and sin, right? That's where we are. We are self-centered. I always always make the joke that everyone is born a Satanist. And what do I mean by that? Well, if I was to grab the Satanic Bible, open up to the very beginning of the Satanic Bible, I get the nine principles of a Satanist, right? In the Satanic Bible. And if we look at those nine principles of a Satanist, remember, what is the most important holiday for someone who goes to the Church of Satan? Their birthday. Why? Because Satanism is not really the worship of Satan of the Bible. Satanism is the worship of self. Satanism itself is an atheistic concept. It's a philosophy. You worship yourself. And we all start off self-centered, worshiping ourselves. That's where we start. I I want you to realize we're trying to get to the place where we focus on others, where we want to serve others. You see where we start off? Others is the last of our concern. In fact, we only see other people in this first stage and our depravity. We see other people as a means to an end. People are there, like I may do something for someone, but I definitely want something in return, right? 
Come on. That's the way. That's our depravity. So that's stage one. Then stage two would be where salvation. And we're going to call this one. So we go from self-centered. And what's supposed to take place is we're supposed to be God-focused. Our focus is now supposed to turn our eyes away from self and focus on God. And this manifests itself in, now we go to church, right? Sometimes we don't want to go to church, correct? Sometimes we don't want to read the Bible. Sometimes we don't want to pray. Sometimes we don't want to do what God tells us to do. Sometimes we want to do what God tells us not to do. So we start learning the Bible. We start trying to memorize. We go to church. We listen to sermons. We start becoming God-focused. Now, here's a problem, though. I'm going to make, I'm going to make, I did not say this yesterday, so I'm going to add this for anyone who was listening yesterday. They can uh, now add this. So stage one is what? Self-centered. Stage two is God-focused, and you can see why. You become a Christian. Now you believe in God. You're trusting in him. You're trying to follow him. But I think a stage three shows up here. And it's really, really deceptive. What do you think stage three is? And it's not a good one. It does, but in what way? We go from self-centered to God-focused to self-righteous. Now our religion, our our faith in Christ, almost becomes a way that we make it about who? Us, right? So we start walking around, and we become spiritually condescending and arrogant, and we judge everyone else, and we think we're morally superior to everyone else, and we point the finger at everyone else, and we gossip, and we slander, and we condemn, and we're like, we're, and we almost walk around like we're better than everyone else. Now, this shows up in different ways. Not, now, again, these stages, uh, these are not something like written in stone. I'm just kind of giving you a normal path that many Christians will walk, right? Because at first you're like, it's about God, but the next thing you know, it's about God. And because I understand God, then it becomes about, well, now I understand God, and I believe in God, and I know how to study the Bible, and I know theology, and look at that person, and that person, and that person, and that person, and that person. And the next thing you know, we're pointing out, look at how they dress, and look at the movies they watch, and look at how they talk. And next thing you know, we think about uh, our focus on God becomes basically on our focus on everyone else not being as godly as we think we are. A lot of people have experienced this. Amen? Remember, I, I've told the story. I found myself in this It took me about six months to find myself in this problem, right? So I become a Christian. Remember the night I became a Christian? I went home, stayed up, read the entire New Testament the first night I was saved. I think within the next 24 to 48 hours, I had the Old Testament knocked out. So I was like, read, 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 study. I was skipping school at Jim Ned, breaking into the First Baptist Church of Tuscola so I could go there and study my Bible. That's what I wanted to do. I didn't care about school anymore. I mean, I didn't care about school before, but, you know, now I could use religion as an excuse. You see, see how that works, right? So I kept studying and studying and studying. And I would go to Sunday school, and guess what I figured out in about five minutes? The teacher had no clue. Clearly, the teacher was, was looking at their lesson Saturday night. 
We had one of those like little study guides. Well, they gave me the study guide, and guess what I did? I went home and read everything and had it marked up. And, and we come, and you could tell that the teacher was like, uh, well, I think we're, I don't know. Uh, well, I think it's, and guess how I handled myself? Oh, I was so godly. I was so humble. No, I was an arrogant, condescending jerk who tried to humiliate the teacher in front of everyone. That's what I did. That's, that's good news, huh? Oh, come on, don't look at me like you're all perfect. Okay? Because I bet you it's shown up in your life in different ways. Maybe not the same way. You're like, not, not like that. Okay, so now we're going to just try to argue which way yours showed up versus the way I showed up. All right, so there's stage number three. What's stage one? Self-centered. Stage two? God-focused. Stage three? Self-righteous. I'm so good. Right? We become like the Pharisees a little bit, yes? All right, what do you think stage four is? Hopefully, somewhere in stage three, hopefully somewhere in stage three, you realize, it's kind of like this. Finally, in stage three, you stop and you look in the mirror and you're like, ah, what's that? And you realize it's what? It's you. And you're like, that, that's horrible. That's horrific. And you realize that you still have a self problem. So then guess what you have to start working on? This stage is where now you try to do the following things. Die to self, deny self, and stop following self. These were the exact words Jesus gave to Peter, right? Remember after Peter was like, Jesus was like, okay, I'm going to have to basically be crucified and died. And what did Peter do? He pulled Jesus aside and began to rebuke him, which is the most insane thing I've ever read in the Bible. Here's Peter rebuking God. No, it's not going to go that way. And Jesus says what? Get thee behind me, Satan. And then he tells them, you must die to self, deny self, and stop following self. This is the stage. Now listen, this is a stage where we struggle and struggle and struggle. And please note, at any point in time, your life may find yourself back in this stage and this stage because we're, guess what always remains with us? Our depraved nature. So it's never like you master one stage. But you can kind of see this advancement. We spend most of our Christian life right here in this stage because it's a constant battle against self. But at some point, hopefully in that stage, you wake up one day and realize, wait a minute, the Christian life is not about me. It's about glorifying God and serving others. Remember what Jesus said the greatest commandments were? They're pretty simple and pretty straightforward. Love the Lord thy God with all your heart, mind, body, and soul. Love your neighbor as yourself. Make this very clear if you don't understand that. Those commandments are there to demonstrate your need for Christ because you will never obey those perfectly or even come close in many cases. You're never going to love God the way you should and you're never going to love others the way you should, which is a constant reminder that if it's it for Christ, then I am condemned. It's the law that drives us to the cross, right? But at some point where you're trying to die to self, hopefully you realize, man, I'm supposed to be serving others. I'm supposed to be putting others before me. 
And if you look at Christianity over the last few years, I think this concept has been completely abandoned. Because over the last few years, the church has been running around screaming, our rights, our rights, our rights, our rights, our rights, and not worried about anybody else. It's all about me, 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 me. What can we do? We do. What about anybody else? What about caring for anybody else? Helping anyone else? Protecting someone else? What about anybody else? So in a sense, Christianity, this is typically what happens. We kind of sometimes advance in our spiritual life, and then sometimes we find ourselves regressing. And guess where we have a, guess where gravity, guess which stage is the gravity of this? The gravity always pulls everything down, right? If I crawl on top of the piano and jump, where am I going? Down. Guess what is always pulling you back? Self. Self. It's always, it's always like, come on, you. It's about you. It's about you. So we, we have to constantly fight. And sometimes we'll experience a breakthrough and we really demonstrate that we care about other people. We demonstrate that it's not about me, it's about other people. Sometimes we will experience that, but it's a never-ending battle. I want you to think of those stages just for the next at least six weeks if you participate in the Bible study exercises. If you don't, think about them at least today, all right? But I say all of that because the text in front of us is John chapter 13. All right, John chapter 13. Hope you have your thinking caps on, okay? John chapter 13. All right, good. I got the introduction done before 6.30. All right, I'm doing great. Everybody ready? Okay. Now, I wouldn't tell you to do an outline, but if I told you to do an outline, you would all do it wrong. Okay, only because the way I'm, going, I'm doing the outline here in a backwards way, okay? So, if I look at John chapter 13, if we start outlining, typically you would start with verse 1, and you would start outlining that way. I don't want our outline to start that way. We're going to start our outline in reverse. I want you to look at verses 15 through 17. 15 through 17. Okay. I want you to read it. I'm not going to read it for you or to you. John 13, 15 through 17. In John chapter 13, we have this, an event that takes place that Jesus is involved with with his disciples. John 13, 15 through 17. Tell me when you've read it. Okay, everybody got it? All right, now if we were doing an outline, now remember when we do outlines, what are we not to do in our outlines? Outlines should not contain an interpretation, should contain an observation. So from a simple observation, John chapter 13, 15 through 17 is giving us what? Okay. Jesus is explaining that what occurs before was done for someone said it as an example. This sets up the purpose of everything that comes before it. So in my outline, guess what I called this? The purpose. The purpose of everything from verse 1 to verse 14 is this. For I've given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Verily, verily, I say unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord, neither he that is sent greater than he that sent me. If ye know these things, happy are ye if you do them. He's trying to give you, here's the purpose. They just encountered something. 
They just witness something. They see something happen. They have an experience. And Jesus wants them to know, hey, all of this that just happened, here is the reason. And we could break it down with subpoints, right? It's an example. What else does he say? A lesson, right? He gives a lesson in there, right? Yes? What else does he say? And it's a source of joy. Is that what it's saying in verse 17? Happiness, right? Happy if you do these things. Okay, so he gives a, he, we can break it down with some sub points if we want to. I'm not going to have you get into that. But I want you to see that what we read, there is a purpose to it. It's not just there going, well, that's an interesting story. No, this is a story. He's trying to show us something. Now, the question is, this is a very important question. Now, this is an interpretive question. Is Jesus just giving us an example so that we can do the exact same thing? Or that the example is that what he does is demonstrating a far bigger and greater point? I think there's a bigger and greater point other than just copying the exact actions. You'll see why here in a minute. All right, everybody got that? So there's the purpose. Now, John chapter 13, verses 1 through 2. You guys read that. John chapter 13, verses 1 through 2. What do you find when you read these two verses? Very good. Very good. We have the setting. What do we learn about the setting? A couple of things have happened, right? Now, before the feast of the Passover, all right, we, we have, that's a part of a, a setting. When Jesus knew that his hour was come, that he should depart out of this world unto the Father, having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. And supper being ended, the devil having now put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. This gives us the setting. What is significant about the setting? It's pretty intense time, right? Jesus knows he's getting ready to, what's getting ready to happen to him? About to be crucified. What else has happened? Judas is going, is, it's, it's been put in his heart to betray him. His betrayal is fast approaching. His death is fast approaching. But in the midst of all of that, where, where the words of Jesus puts the focus where? What does it say in verse 1? His hour is almost there. What does it say? He's done something. He's loved. Right? Says he's loved his own, right? What does that demonstrate? That in this very difficult time, he's about to die. Someone's about to stab him in the back and betray him. But where is his focus? Others. Others, remember the, the stages, right? Okay, here's Jesus demonstrating that when he, I mean, come on, let, let, let's just say, let, let, let me, let's try this. Let's say right now, you just found out, you get a text on your phone, you're going to die in 15 minutes. And someone in this building is going to betray you. Now at that moment, would you be worried about everyone else? First, you may go, wait, who's sending me this text? 
Two, you may like, I hope this is not true. And three, later, guys, I've only got 15 minutes left and I don't want to be listening to him preach. Okay, yeah, that's probably going to be some of the things that go through your mind, right? Yes? Okay, you're not going to be focused on others. But we are confronted with Jesus who is doing what? Again, what does it say? Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour was come, that he should depart out of the world unto the Father, having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. And guess what he's getting ready to do? He's getting ready to do something for the people present. He's getting ready to focus on them, not him. Here's an here's a, here's a, a application for us this evening. Where, where is your focus, typically? You or them? Remember, what's the first statement? That's our depravity, right? Where are we supposed to be getting? Others. Please note, you don't get to the others until you learn to deny yourself and die to self and stop following self. That's why you have to go to that stage before you're ever going to get to this last stage. Jesus, obviously, is the eternal Son of God, so he understands the stage, which then demonstrates to us our need for him because in ourselves we will never do this perfectly. But in Christ, I do it perfectly. Does that make sense? All right. Let's see what happens. Everybody ready? Now, verse. so the setting... I think verse 1 and 2, there's no question that gives us the setting. So we have the purpose, we have the setting. Here's the question for you. And I did this on purpose. Verse 3. Should we put verse 3 in the setting, or should we put verse 3 as a separate point? I'm giving you an opportunity. I was going to do it for you, but I decided not to. But we're doing an outline. What do you think? What do we got? What does verse 3 say? Someone tell me. What does verse 3 say? You can summarize. Okay. All right. This, this, what would you say this gives us some uh, perspective on who Jesus is? Right? Okay. Okay. So we could we could kind of put it with the setting, right? The setting, if you think about the setting, what is the setting giving us? It's giving us information about who, right? When, where, what's going on. So we'll just put this with verse 3 with the setting. But it does give us some specific information about Jesus. All right? This is very important. So, based on verse 1 and verse 3, based on verse 1 and verse 3, what are some things we learn about Jesus in verse 1 and verse 3? Because verse 2 is about Judas, right? Correct? So, if you were just to write it out, what are some things we learn about Jesus in verse 1 and verse 2? You you tell me the phrase and what it it signifies. So, give me the phrase in verse 1 that signifies whatever you think it signifies. He knew. All right, so this possibly knows, maybe, someone said omniscient. Maybe it shows him being all-knowing. I don't know. But he definitely has knowledge of what's coming. 
Now that's important, right? Because the fact he knows what's coming makes what he's getting ready to do more dramatic. Because he's getting ready to put the focus on other people, not on himself. So this knowledge really makes the story more important. What's another thing we see about Jesus? Anybody can answer? Okay, How do we, where do we get his pre-existence? What verse? Verse 3? He come from God. Okay, so he's, this shows the fact that Jesus has existed in eternity past. All right, so now we have, a God, we have Jesus, just from this, who knows what's getting ready to happen, before it's going to happen, and he has come from God. This signifies that Jesus is what? Elevated something more important than the average person. We can put it in that, in, in, in that language. This, signif- this is important though, right? Because he's getting ready to put the focus where? On others who are not, cannot be described in these same words, all right? So you'll you'll see why. In other words, what's getting ready to happen is going to demonstrate a humility. And in a sense, he's showing a humble service to others. Think of it this way. It's very easy to focus on others, well, think about it. We can just, if, like if ever, some of you may remember back when you went to high school. Okay, if you remember back when you went to high school, okay, and you're like, okay, all right, I've, I've been a Christian and I'm really trying to get to this other people thing, other people thing. And you come into school and you see two people and you're like, okay, all right, this one is kind of popular and everyone likes them. Okay, yeah, I can, I can. And they seem to have a need right now. I'm going to try to help them out. And you can be doing that for what purpose? For you. Then there's another person here and you're like, everyone hates this person. If I get within two feet of this person, everyone's going to hate me. You have a tendency to help whom? Not humble yourself to help someone who can't do anything for you. The fact that Jesus would love any of us or do anything for us is the example of humble service to others. It's not that you just serve someone. It serves someone who, and from your perspective, may not deserve it, they have not earned it, and you may think they, they shouldn't get anything. That is when you're really serving someone else because you're not getting anything from it. Right? Okay, now all of a sudden it got convicting, didn't it? Right? Okay. All right. So, what do we have so far in our outline? We have the purpose. John 13, 15 through 17. We have the setting. We're going to go John 13, 1 through 3. We could do a little work on that, but that's okay. Then, what do we have starting in verse 4 all the way down to 14? Okay. Or we can call it the event. Right? Because something's getting ready to happen. But here's what I want you to write next to the word event, for, for, just for your outline. I want you to write in parentheses. You ready for this? The parable. Now, I'm not calling it a parable in our outline. And why am I not calling it a parable in our outline? Because that's Interpretation. Right? So we'll call it the event. 
but most throughout church history believe what's getting take, take place. It is an actual event. It really did happen. Jesus really does what he's going to do in this event, but it was done as a parable. Now, let's remind ourselves. What do we always say about a parable? What's, what's a simple way of understanding a parable? An earthly example of a heavenly principle. In other words, we have a heavenly principle, we have a heavenly concept, and sometimes we can't understand those heavenly concepts. So we have to break it down in an earthly story. But remember, sometimes the parables were given not to clarify, but to hide. So sometimes you still have the heavenly principle, but then Jesus would give a parable where the average person looking at the parable is like, what is this? I don't even understand. Right? And then it's your job to try to figure it out. Those who have ears will hear. Those who have eyes will see. You get the idea. But simply put, you have this big heavenly principle. Now, we know there's a heavenly principle going on here, right? Why do we know there's a heavenly principle going on here? Go down to the end to the purpose. It's an example. He wants them to learn something from this, right? Everybody remember that? So now, there is something. Jesus is getting ready to give them an example. Let's read the story, and then we're going to take it apart. Everybody ready? Verse 4. He riseth from supper. He laid aside his garments, took a towel, girded himself. After that, he poureth water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel wherewith he was girded. Now, just stop right here. Anyone reading that should stop, and there should almost be an audible, because at this point, we should already know who Jesus is, right? In the beginning was the Word, was with God, was God. This is the eternal Son of God. We have the eternal son of God who just stood up, removed his garments, wrapped himself basically in a towel, bows, gets down before sinful people and washes their feet. And it's something that is supposed to be seen as the only people who would do that would be whom in this culture? A slave. And you got to be like, what is... This tells us something's going on here. Something's going on here. Jesus just got down. I mean, nobody, I don't think anybody would want to have that job. Period. In any culture. But in this culture, they walked around with, with, you know, their feet would be dirty. Yeah, very dirty. And not only, just, and it's very interesting, the towel that he is girded with what does it say about the, what He's washing their feet and cleaning it with the very towel he's wearing. Like, why wouldn't you go get a different towel? The language is very interesting here. Very interesting. Very interesting. Okay, continue reading. Verse 6, then, oh, well, no, we'll just stop right there in verse 5. Stop in verse 5. Then go to down to verse 12. So after he had washed their feet and had taken his garment and was set down again, 
he said unto them, Know ye what I have done to you? Now, why would he do that? So, he, he, he rises up, removes the garment, takes a towel, wraps that around him, gets down, pours water into a basin, washes their feet, wipes their feet with the towel he's wearing, finally stands back up so that he can go back to the place where he was seated, in a sense, put back on his garments, and then what is after? They're, it's almost like you can tell that nobody knows, you know, they, they don't really know what's going on, and then he looks at them and says what? You can look at the verse. Do you know what I've done to you? That seems like a weird question, right? Why is that a weird question? Does it require a seminary or Bible education to figure out that someone just washed your, your foot or feet? Right? So obviously he's not asking for someone to say, what does he not want the answer to be? You just washed my feet. Like sometimes when I ask a question and I'm like, well, what are you doing? I made it so clear. Right? He's, he's asking the question because he wants someone to get it. In other words, what he just did goes beyond what just happened. What he just did was a parable. Let me, let me read from a number of people in church history so you don't think I'm crazy. This is far more than a courteous uh, gesture by which he is attempting to give his disciples an ethical lesson in serving. In other words, they're saying this goes beyond even just a lesson on how to serve other people. He's going beyond that. The washing of the disciples' feet rests upon and interprets the death of the Lord. Listen to this. The words laid aside and later when he had taken his garments. Look at verse 4. Do you see the words laid aside? Verse 12. Do you see when it says he had taken his garments? Are identical to those he uses when he earlier speaks of his own death as the good shepherd. I lay down my life that I may take it again. John chapter 10, verse 11, 15, 17, and 18. This is an act of incredible humility when Jesus voluntarily does the menial work of a slave, but for more, listen, are you ready? It is a parable in action. What was it called? A parable. Oh, wait, here's another from church history. There can be little doubt that in this passage, Jesus is deliberately working out a parable for the instruction of his disciples. Wow. There seems to be a lot of... That's weird when you find agreement on something in church history. Okay, that's when you stop and go, whoa, this, you know, we just found a, a chupacabra here. We just found something unique because this never appears anywhere. There's agreement on something. So let's go through the parable. Everybody ready? Or we'll go through the event, and now we're going to interpret the event as a parable. All right? So let's go to the very beginning. All right? Everybody ready? Uh, verse... Four, it says what? He riseth. 
All right, let's stop right here. Now, verse 3, this is what I have in my own notes, sets up beautifully the parable. All right, because what happens, what what does it say in verse 3? What does it say in verse 3? He knew that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he was come from God and went to God. Verse 3 tells me that at some point, Jesus had been with God. We go back to John chapter 1. We know in the beginning was the Word. The Word was God and the Word was with God, right? One God, three distinct persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, right? Co-equal, co-eternal, right definition of the Trinity. We don't want a wrong definition of the Trinity, okay? He had been with the Father. Again, one God, three distinct persons. He had been with him. Now, if he had been with the Father, and now he's on earth, we begin to get a picture here. At some point, Jesus, in a sense, sitting on the right hand of the Father, on the throne, stands up, to go through the incarnation and be born in Bethlehem. Right? His rising up here is he is now picturing, guess what he's getting ready to do in the parable? He's going to picture his entire mission to save sinners. Which demonstrates humility. Now I want you to understand, God in the flesh stands up, or or we put it this way, God stands up to come to earth to take on flesh is a great act of humble service because the only people on this earth to serve are sinners who don't deserve anything. He rises up. What does he do after he rises up? He laid aside his garments. I don't think anyone has a problem figuring out what this is. Go go to Philippians 2. Now, we got to be very careful here because lots of heresies show up in church history here, okay? People go crazy. They go cuckoo for cocoa puffs at this point, okay? All right? Everybody loses their mind at this point, but we need to at least understand it, okay? Go to Philippians chapter 2. This is a very important passage. All right, everybody ready? And just to show you that this is giving us the same concept, verse 1, Philippians 2, 1, If there be therefore any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, fulfill ye my joy that be, you be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vain glory, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better, better than themselves. Wouldn't it be great if that happened in your house for like five minutes? Wouldn't it be great if it ever happened in the church? Wouldn't it be great if it ever happened in your life or my life? Let look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. He lays aside something. He rises up and lays aside something to come to this earth. 
Now, this is a very interesting Greek word. If you have the Blue Letter Bible app, you can go ahead and open it right now because I always have everyone use it. Very interesting word here. All right? I'm going to go to the interlinear. Made of no reputation. Made of no reputation. Does everybody know what that Greek word is? I'll let you hear it. Strong's G2758. Kanao. 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 Now, Kanao has led to more issues in church history than I can currently count, and I don't have time to go into a theological church history discussion. But Kanao means, are you ready? It's used five times. Make void, make of none effect, make of no reputation, be in vain. Strong's definition, to make empty, figuratively, to abase, neutralize, falsify, make of none effect, no reputation, void, be in vain. Some will say that, that some will want to translate it to make empty. That's where people get really nervous. To make empty. Now let's think about what Jesus does. Let's make, let's make, want, this is a basic doctor, a little bit of theology here. When Christ came to this earth, everyone listen to me, he did not cease to be God. Okay, so he did not lay aside his deity. If you say that, well, you're a heretic, okay? <laughs> There's no other way to say it, okay? We got problems, okay? He did not lay aside his deity. What does he lay aside? His glory. He lays aside, listen, he lays aside certain benefits of that deity, because think of it this way. When Jesus is walking the earth, how many places can be, he be at one time? One, because in his flesh. He gets hungry. He gets tired. He can feel physical pain when they rip his beard out and put the crown of thorns on and put nails through his hands and feet. He feels that. When he lays aside that garment, in a sense, he lays aside his reputation because he takes on the form of a servant, right? He lays it all aside and when people see him, what do they see? If you would have lived back then and you're walking down the street and Jesus is walking the other way, you wouldn't have stopped going, oh, I feel a presence. You would have just saw a man. But that man was true God and true man, right? Remember hypostatic union? We've talked about all of this. So I can't go too much into this, but just make sure he didn't lay aside his deity. I'll read just for a couple of things from the interlinear, all right? Um, the... Uh, if you take, it's taken directly from Thayer's Greek lexicon. The statement that Christ laid aside equality with or the form of God is confusing and, ero and erroneous if understood as the removal of Christ's divine nature. Such interpretations is not supported here or elsewhere in Scripture. The text does not state that Christ emptied himself of anything, but rather that he emptied himself by taking the form of a human and the servant to the point of death for our good and for our salvation. Right? He sets aside that glory. He sets aside that reputation or that honor. Because he's born as a, a baby. I mean, just... In that mind box, I mean, that, that's just that's hard for me to wrap my mind around. Here's the eternal God, and he's a baby. He's got to have his diaper changed. 
That's humiliating from, a, from my perspective, right? Eternal God, and now someone has to carry him, feed him. He has to learn to walk. That's insane to even con- contemplate, right? But he does, he does it. Listen, he doesn't stop being God. Now, why is he doing all of that? To serve others. That's humble service. That's humble service. Look, it's one thing to say, oh, I serve someone. You serve someone who you, who you love, you have an emotional relationship with, you know that they're going to probably give something back to you. They give you some sense of, of, of security or something. Give me a break. Go serve someone who can't do anything for you, who may actually hate you and spit in your face. That's different, is it not? So we got to go through this quickly. I I, want to spend more time on that Greek word, but we're going to run out of time. All right. So here we go. So he rises up. That's in a sense, Jesus in heaven rising up from the throne. He removes his garment. That's laying aside, in a sense, his glory. I think that's a good way of saying it. Doesn't lay aside his deity. Then what does the text say he does next in in, uh, John 13? Is it what? Verse three, verse four or verse four? Puts on a garment. Now, what's that in the story, in the parable? Takes on flesh. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. John chapter 1, verse 14. And he became flesh. He took on human flesh. Not only did he take human flesh, go back to Philippians 2. He takes on the form of what? A servant. Jesus could have come to earth he could have taken on human flesh, and he could have taken on the form of what? A king. He could have just walked right in and said, I'm taking over. But that's not what he came to do in that first coming, right? He did not come to do that. They were looking for that earthly king, but he's like, no, I'm come to serve. He had to serve first. All right, everybody got that? I'm having to speed up some of these, Okay. All right, then what does he do? The water. Now, what could the water be? There's two possibilities here. I'm going to have to go through these quickly. All right, he pours water into a basin, right? So Jesus comes and in the, what is he referred to in John chapter one? The word, all right? Now, if we go to Ephesians five, what's the thing that we're cleansed by? The washing of the word. So the water here could be connected to the word of God because he does bring the word of God. Yes, he is the word of God. Okay. And it's through the word that we are cleansed. What else could it refer to? Do what? John 3, which is the word. Yeah, but the water there is, is the word in John 3. Yeah. So, uh, so that's so it could refer to the word. Now it could, and this is where most go in church history, and I'm just going to read this to save time. Okay, everybody ready? All right. The the water here, it's not so much the focus is on the water, it's what he does with the water. What does he do with the water? He washes their feet. Now the word of God does wash, but they think what this is representing is his blood or his sacrifice that paid the price for our own sin debt forever in the eyes of God. The Bible tells us the blood spilled as a sacrifice by Jesus ensures we are forgiven and redeemed from our sins. 
We don't have time to look all of these up, so you can write them down. Ephesians 1.7. The blood reconciles us to God. Colossians 1.20. And it gives us direct access to God in the most holy place, Hebrews 10.19. Without the need for a, you know, a priest, uh, because Christ becomes our high priest. Right? As the Apostle Peter wrote to the early church, for you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from the ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. 1 Peter 1, 18-19. Jesus' blood was the sacrifice that established a new covenant between God and the people. All who believe, he took the disciples as much as the... Uh, and all who believe, he told the disciples as much at the Last Supper when he took bread and wine, blessed it, and told them, this is my body and my blood, giving a cup to the disciples to drink. Jesus said, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. All right? So the idea, and I, I, there's, I wanted to go much more into, in depth here, but let's just think of it this way. Jesus pours the water into the basin, right? He washes the feet, and then he wipes it with his garment. That demonstrates Jesus is going to cleanse them through something that is poured out involving his flesh because he wipes the feet with the towel which represents the flesh that he has taken. How does Jesus redeem us and save us? Through the sacrifice that he gives in his flesh and what is poured out from that? In a sense, his blood and we are cleansed by blood, because there is no forgiveness of sins without the shedding of blood. So he pours out his blood so that we can be cleansed. Does everybody see that? Then, we don't have time to go all the way through this. Look at John 13. Now go to the two. There. I know there's this discussion here with Peter and about being cleansed. We'll have to look at all of that this week in the Bible study exercise. But go down to verse 14. Or, uh, see, yes. Um, okay, uh, verse 12, I should say. So after he had washed their feet, he had taken his garments and was set down again, and he said unto them. After he is done, what does he do? Puts the garment back on. After Jesus comes to this earth to humbly serve and to die, he's buried, resurrects the third day, ascends to the right hand of the Father, right? Yes? And when he ascends to the right hand of the Father, what does he now have back? His glory and his honor. Correct? And when he comes again, he's going to come in glory and honor. He's not going to come as a servant. He's going to come as a conquering king. Right? And we go to Revelation 19 and we see that play out there. Yes? All right. So, this is a parable. So let's go through the outline again. What's the first thing we have in John 13? Doing this in, uh, the way we did the outline. We have the purpose. There's an example here, right? There's something he wants us to learn. Then we have the setting, right? John 13, basically we said one ver verses 1 through 3, yes? Right? Then we have the event, which is verses 4, and down to what, verse 14, I think we said? 14, the event, and then we've understood the event to be a parable. All right, now, what are we to learn from the parable? Let's make this very simple. 
We are to learn from the parable first and foremost that Jesus came as a humble servant to serve others. And if you are a Christian, that service has been provided to you by pouring out his blood and dying on a cross to save you from your sin. But what does he say in the purpose? The end of the chapter. Does he say, I want you to learn a theology lesson so that you can be really smart in Bible college? Do as I have done. Now, some people think this is reduced to simply a a foot washing ceremony that they will do once a year in their church. That, to me, is ridiculous because that, that, that doesn't accomplish anything. It may be good symbolism, right? But it doesn't do anything. What we need is not people waiting for once a year so that one person in the church can come up there and wash a couple of feet and everybody's like, oh, okay, great. No, it needs to motivate us to realize that we are called to the same life of humble service as we have received from Jesus. The Christian mindset has to be, I die, think about it, I die to self, I no longer serve self, I stop following self, and when self is gone, my focus is supposed to be on humbly serving other people. So, here's the question. i got two questions, I guess, to end with. Think about the last week. Where was your focus? Others or you? Just think about just the last week. Just look back. Just the last seven days. Was it other-directed, other-focused, or were you really way back in stage one, self-focused? Were you really God-focused? Were you struggling about, man, I gotta, I'm trying to die to self. I'm fighting it. I'm, I'm, I'm working on it. I'm working on it. Or did you go, man, last seven days, I really was focused on others. I was humbly serving others. I didn't get upset about anything. I was thinking about other people, caring about other people, looking out for other people's needs. Just be honest with yourself. Then I want you to think about how Christ has humbly served you. Compare what you have done to what Christ has done for you. Now, that should lead to probably a great amount of conviction. Right? I don't know about you. I feel pretty inadequate at that point. Yes? Now, here's what I want you to do. I want you to now think about the week to come. And I want you to just think, in this week to come, just find something small. Think of ways that you can humbly serve other people. Now, don't humbly serve someone this week. Right? I don't care who it is, husband, wife, brother, sister, I don't care. Don't go humbly serve someone, and then when they're like, whatever, and they don't say thank you, don't go, they didn't thank me, and they didn't, they, no, 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 no. If you do that, you're not humbly serving others, you're trying to serve yourself by serving other people. Does everybody see the difference? If I serve others, I'm not looking for anything. Right? If I start looking for something, who am I serving? Me. That's hard not to do, right? 
Okay? I hope, what I hope happens this week is I hope the first person you serve, I hope the first person you serve, right? I don't care what it is. Maybe you're the wife and you cook a great meal. I hope your husband walks to the table, throws it on the ground, goes, this is garbage, and walk away. And I want you to go, well, praise Jesus, I serve someone, okay? Okay? Why, why do I want that to happen? Because it will challenge you really quick if you humbly served or you didn't. Because some of you would run back and go, oh, no, you don't. And come back and you'd be like, throw, in the, you'd throw the food back at them. And that would probably be the end of your humble service. Right? In other words, it's, it's, I'm just trying to show you, it's easy to serve. When it's, it's, I want, do you think... He washed Judas's feet. If he washed Judas's feet, if we believe that that occurred, that's worse than taking your food and throwing it on the floor. He's literally kneeling down and washing the feet of someone who's going to take those clean feet and go run off and sell him out for 30 pieces of silver. I may be tempted to break both feet so he can't go betray me. Okay. Am I the only one who, th- who thought that? Am I the only one? I'd be like, oh, you're, I'm like, you're not going anywhere. Snap, snap. I can't walk. Well, and you don't have a cell phone. I guess you're not going to be betraying anybody today. Now, I would take him to the hospital. I would show compassion. And then I would just make sure he doesn't have a cell phone so that he can call the scribes and the Pharisees so they come get me. Now, I say that, and you're like, well, that's just horrible. But I, look, I'm not, I, I, Bobby said it. What did you say? We're not God. All right, so that's my, the way I would think. You, say, you can sit there looking all self-righteous, but I guarantee you, again, I'll go back to that. Someone does that to you, throw it on the floor this week and say, whatever, you're going to be like, you're going to be called. I'm not serving another person. I, I don't, that's the dumbest sermon you've ever preached. And I'll just have to say, it probably is the dumbest sermon I've ever preached, but the problem is, John 13 is still in the Bible. You've got to deal with it, not, not me. Now, should someone throw it on the floor and treat you that way? No. But Jesus typically doesn't say, do this if everything works out for you. That would not be humble service. Remember, this week's whole study is on humble service for others. Okay. Any questions? So just, just without looking at your notes, let's go through our outline. First point of our outline, purpose. John 13, what verses? 15 through 17. Number two, the setting. John chapter 13, verse 1 through 3. Next, the event. John 13, verse 4. four oh, look at that. Verse 14. I like that. Verse 14. And then we, we interpret the event as a... Parable. The parable pictures Jesus in heaven, standing up, setting aside his glory, wrapping himself in a towel, human flesh, taking on the form of a servant, coming to this earth with his flesh, dying and shedding his blood so that we can experience salvation. He served us, so we should be willing to serve others. 
Will we ever do it perfectly? That's why we need his service. Because if, it was, if our salvation is based off we do, what we do, we're all finished. Because nobody would get to heaven if it's based off what we do. Getting to heaven is based off what Christ did. We should always be grateful. All right, let's pray. Lord God, we come before you this evening. Thank you for such a powerful example. We fall so short of this example, but we are grateful and thankful that your son served us and shedding his blood so that we may have eternal life. Let us have the same heart of service for others and forgive us when we fall short. We ask this in Jesus' name. And God's people said...